0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Over the past few weeks, there have been reports of Russia working as a diplomatic go-between Iran and Israel. Putin has hosted high-level visits with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zarif, and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. So what's going on, and what are Russia's relations with Israel, Iran, and Syria, and its interest in the Middle East more broadly? For some insight, I turn to Maxim Suchkov. Maxim Suchkov is the editor of All Monitors Russia Middle East coverage. He is a non-resident expert at the Russian International Affairs Council and at the Valdai International Discussion Club. Formerly, he was a Fulbright Visiting Fellow at Georgetown University in 2010 and 2011 and New York University in 2015. Here's Maxim Suchkov. So it's been a, a pretty dramatic last few weeks in the Middle East. And, you know, the U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Israel and Iran traded fire across the border. There's the massacre at the Gaza border. And there's visits by, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Iranian foreign minister, Mohammed Zarif, and Syrian uh, President Bashar al-Assad all on their own going to Moscow and, vi- and talking with Putin. So I thought we'd start by just having you give a general outline of, of the situation right now vis-à-vis Russia, and and what is Russia's general approach to all of these issues?
1: Well, as you as you accurately mentioned, there it's been it's been a, it's, it's it's been very uh, hectic and busy uh, several weeks, I would think, in, in the Russian capital, uh, in terms of uh, decision making and making moves and, and policy decisions on the Middle East, and all of the I think Iran and Israel. Have been uh, and their ongoing escalations have been in focus for uh, for Moscow. A few weeks ago in Sochi, there's been attempt by Russia to set up mediation talks uh, between Israelis and Iranians, with the head of the uh, Secretary of the Russian Security Council, Patrushev, uh, having separate bilateral meetings first with the Secretary of Iran's Supreme uh, National Security Council. Ali Shakhmani, and later on the same day, he had a meeting with Elton Ben Lavid, deputy head of Israel's National Security Council. So this kind of triggered the rumors that Russians are mediating, and uh, these rumors have been denied by the official Kremlin. At the same time, you know, sources with, with knowledge of the situation say that these attempts indeed took place, even though the Iranians and Israelis have never sit at the same table the Russians were trying to understand whether there is a space between the two to, you know, for for Moscow's mediation. And uh, it's not really clear if there was any, any, you know, uh, substantive result of these conversations, but I think there was an understanding that the differences are so big that there is really little that Moscow can do. At the same time, Russians coming out of the kind of understanding that uh, if the fight is an, is inevitable anyway, well, let's just try and see uh, you know if if you know it, it can be moderated somehow because the, the, the you know the, the truce is worth the squeeze. otherwise there might be a bigger uh, fight in the region that would not be in uh, Russia's interest or will hurt Russia's own assets in Syria. Uh, so that's one like chunk of Russian agenda in recent weeks. Then the other one uh, is with the President Assad, and uh, I think early or late last year, Moscow made a decision that 2018 should be a year where Russia will take concrete steps to uh, trend, shift from military campaign to uh, political settlement. I mean that's been that's been like policy orientation, if not a goal, for, for quite quite a long time. And I think ever since Putin first announced there was the so-called withdrawal of troops, which, which never happened. Uh, but then the difference today is I think he, and that's what he articulated to Assad, that's what the people in Moscow talk about, that uh, he mentioned actually that Russia is now going to pursue two tracks instead of military, I mean, military will continue, although at a lower intensification level, that's a correct term, Uh, the the one track will be political settlement that's now going to be uh, carried out, uh, not so much at the Astana, more so at the Sochi venue and the second one is the efforts on the restoration uh Syria restoration and and you know efforts to try to gain support and international sponsors or donors for different restoration programs and definitely both agendas are very difficult
0: <laughs> it's interesting because it it seems like Russia is playing um has a has a quite advantageous role in the sense that because it actually talks to all of these people, Israel, Iran, Syria, it can act as an intermediary. Um do you see it how do you see the, the are they filling a vacuum that the United States has left behind because the United States has not isn't interested in saying bro- broaching uh you know dialogue with Iran or facilitating dialogue between Israel and Iran and its other regional uh, other regional players?
1: Well, I hate doing Kremlinology, even though I think at psychological level, things like this definitely massage Putin's ego in that, you know, Russia is, seems to be positioned as the only player and in uh, being able to mediate between both because it's talking with every single player in the region. And most importantly, I think every single player in the region wants to, to have uh, discussions with the Russians because you see... You know, Moscow flocked with different delegations from from different groups, starting from you know different opposition groups, Syrian opposition groups, to Israelis, to Iranians, to Assad, to Hezbollah, to Houthis in Yemen, and and, and many others. Uh, that definitely you know something that uh, Putin sees as an uh, outcome of the syria campaign you know russia wanted to be listened to respected and feared off and and here you have it even though it may be perception and not necessarily uh you know substantive influence and then, and again, there are debates about this whether it's a perception or a real thing. But it's, this thing is there. It's you know a thing on the ground, and, and 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 different players have to take it into account. On the very Iran-Israel thing, uh, I do believe that Russia is coming out of this idea that choosing a side in this uh, conflict is fraught with more losses for Russia than gains. Because both Israel and Iran have a special value to uh, Russia in the region and outside the region, each for their own reasons. And I think under Putin, Russia's policy are toward Israel are the most friendly in, in its history. You know, the Soviet Union has traditionally had this pro-Arab sentiment. And, then uh, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag in the 1990s. And then under Putin... Russia and Israel have had the, the best relationship ever, and uh, and again, and in Iran, and and then you know in the conversations Russians have with the Israelis, they're they're saying, well, and the Israelis are actually saying we understand the Iran is your quote unquote strategic partner in, in in Syria. I personally don't particularly like this framing of strategic partnership. But again, uh, you know, Israel's strategic partner is definitely not Russia, but rather the United States. Well, that said, I think as long as, and I think this is Moscow's logic so far, as long as Russia's own interests in this confrontation between Iran and Israel are not directly hurt, Moscow will be dodging to directly take sides. So because, you know, as I mentioned, the differences are so strong, that even though there are some expectations both on the side of Israel and Iran, you know, that, that Russians can maybe urge Iranians to leave Syria, uh, I think in the hardly understand that it. it's not possible. There, Iran and Israel are both heavyweight regional players. And, you know, the United States may, may be gone, Russia may be gone, but both will stay. And, I mean, what kind of guarantees the Russians can provide? There are some things, you know, like at the the discussion level, they would say, well, the Russians can can promise Israelis and work towards this idea of creating a kind of security zone alongside Israeli border, kind of Hezbollah-free zone, you know, where the Russians can uh, deploy their military police or whatever force that can kind of create this sense of security for the Israelis. Well, that is, I mean… That is plausible, but then there are bigger things like with the Golan Heights, uh, with the locations of Hezbollah in in, in Syria and things like this, things that, you know, Russians cannot either solve or simply, you know, try to influence without igniting conflict with Iran. And I think this is understanding all of that. Uh, Russia is trying to convey to both Israel and Iran the idea that its current position—I mean Russia's current position—as kind of the only go-to entity for bilateral security issues is equally beneficial for both, unless the bond, you know, hostilities slip into a bigger uh, regional war. But as we know, you know, Iranians and Israelis are very uh, powerful and stubborn, uh, if I may say, counterparts. So.
0: In one of your columns about this, the, the role of Russia playing this go between um, Israel and Iran, you, you and, and here I think goes to the issue of perception. But one of the things you said is that each side, the Iranians and the Israelis think that Russia has more influence over the other than they actually do. And they're kind of banking on – so the Iranians are banking on Russia's ability to convince Netanyahu to you know, accept certain things and vice versa. Do you think that uh, – will the Russians – I mean one of the themes here in the United States when this issue of Russia and Iran and Israel comes up is at some point Russia's going to have to pick a side. Do you think that they will be forced at some point to choose a side?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I think – this will be a very bad scenario for Russia because right now they they, they are coming up to believe that taking a side in in this conflict uh, means uh, kind of losing this, what they see as a unique position now as a go-between. And uh, that is is very difficult to imagine and I think that is actually part of the reason why Russia is now uh, watching carefully and with a lot of, well I would say fear, but with a lot of concern, uh, the u s steps vis-a-vis Iran now because you know when we're we're discussing uh, and you know people are, are saying you know the Trump's decision to leave GcpoA actually benefits Russians and the Chinese you know in terms of economic benefits and then Iran will have to work with Russians and Chinese now that that is partially true at the same time if the hostilities go kind of out of hand and there is a bigger war or military pressure or a dile- direct attempt to to regime change in Iran uh, that'll push Moscow to be more you know supportive of Iran than it is which i would think currently is not is not uh, a favorable option for 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 Russia it it likes having a relationship with Iran at the level And it is. That's why I particularly dislike the notion of strategic partners, uh, strategic alliance, because I don't think there is an alliance and there should be an alliance because alliances tend to bide the, the, the allies by commitments and think and, you know, make them fight each other wars, which Russia doesn't really want to do for Iran in the region and spoil relationship with with the Gulf monarchies or with Israel or with others. So and that's a very di- difficult and 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 fine balance that Moscow is trying to keep in its relations with Iran. We and then, and and you know if if this balance is upset, then Russia will have to take some very hard uh, choices. It seems that one one of the
0: the kind of. Principle of Russian foreign policy in the region, but I think in general is that they they they're they're trying to compartmentalize relationships to to avoid getting dragged into some sort of alliance situation, and they are looking for any kind of transactional uh, relations with the you know regional powers or even great powers. Um, I I do I do agree with you in this idea that strategic partnership with Iran is is too much because. I think foreign, like I said, Russian foreign policy is to avoid alliances at you know at all costs if possible.
1: Yeah, I even I even think of uh, Iran and Russia and Turkey for this matter as a uh, strategic single. You know, they're they're singles; <laughs> they're all singles. They don't want to be coupled, and that's actually maybe a strength of their position.
0: Yeah, I mean, Turkey is a great example because you know, remember what a year year and a half ago. We people thought that Turkey and Russia were, go, were going to go to war after the Turks shot down the Russian uh, fighter, and now they've seemed to come to at least some, you know, um, some agreement of sorts and how to deal with one another. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. You 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 mentioned it because I think a few days before
1: the election re-election of uh, Putin for put the to the fourth term, he was asked in a TV interview uh whether he trusts Erdogan, you know, and he kind of tried to dodge the question and said, uh we're we're not basing our relationship on trust. I wonder if he if he if he meant like anymore, but he said we're not basing our relationship on trust, but on a on a genuine desire to understand each other interests accurately. It was very, you know, Dodgy diplomatic way of, of of putting that. Following the jet crisis, Russia and Turkey kind of tried to find a new basis for the relationship, uh, which was more like diehard realism, you know, and, and uh, being more uh, careful with one another.
0: Let me ask you about about Russian-Israeli relations in particular, because we in the United States we don't hear much about Russian and Israeli relations. And, and, but it's interesting because Putin and Netanyahu meet and talk fairly often. I think actually they met personally four times last year, if I'm maybe a few more. And, and of course, there's the, which the most recent uh, visit of Bibi to Moscow, which has a lot of symbolism, uh, and, and I'm sure it was a, a, a big, Gesture to Putin and and the Russian government in general, and that is attending Victory Day and also walking in the Immortal Regiment per thing. So, and, and and you just said a few minutes ago how Russian-Israeli relations are better than they ever have been. So, what is the nature of uh, Russia and Israeli relations?
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a question that I think a lot of people are really curious about, even in this country. I think Netanyahu and Putin. Uh, have definitely have some good personal chemistry. So it's interesting to see, you know, whenever there is a new government in Israel, what their relationship with Putin would be. But I think at the personal level, there is really good chemistry between these two men, you know, who like ruling with an iron fist and things like this. At the same time, I think Netanyahu understands a lot of things that are psychologically impor- important to Putin. So it is no coincidence that he's he's making all these overtures on the victory day, on Putin's recognition of the importance of of Holocaust, on Putin's personal backgrounds of growing up in in Leningrad with a with a Jewish family that taught him play piano and things like this, you know, and he he, he knows how to play this personally important dear things politically like you know he knows that putin is, is mad at, at western states for not recognizing russia's role in the world war ii and he says but we do recognize and here's you know we're going to commemorate it on may 9th instead of may 8th as the rest of europe does things like this and at the same time israel has a more uh kind of strategic dimension uh in that in a uh, for Russian foreign policy agenda where issue of say fight in terrorism is 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 ranked really high. So there are some interesting discussions between Russian and uh, Israeli security establishments on the exchange of experience of, of fighting terrorism and preventing prevent, it, prevent uh, preventing terrorist attacks. There are some interesting things on military cooperation that you know, Russia found itself under sanctions, and European and American sanctions, and Israel, you know, kind of refused to join these thing, sanctions, and now Russia is looking to Israel as a potential provider of high-tech technology that it is unable to get from from the West. So there is this uh, kind of facet that is very important to, to the Russian economy. And, and then there is uh, this big resource for foreign policy, which is uh, Russian-Jewish diaspora, You know that left in early 90s there they may be mad at the soviet union and at the same time some are kind of reminiscent but they're looking to to up to russia and then i think russians are now trying to see if there is a way to uh kind of uh, reach out to this group of people in 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 creating a positive image to to russia so there, there there are some some this i mean as i mentioned there are some bigger strategic things but then putin and netanyahu there is a create a certain political moment for these things to be implemented and i think and netanyahu is actually using this uh, relationship to convey uh, israeli concerns and i know that you know after a meeting with netanyahu putin would go out and say well we really recognize and understand israeli concerns i mean like yes we do understand them and I mean, even even someone in the foreign ministry remarked to me some time ago, saying, actually, at the personal level, Putin would probably trust Netanyahu more than Rouhani. But then again, you know, who knows what's what's in their head, right? But at the bigger state-to-state level, Russia understands all the repercussions that are coming with you know with unilateral support for Israel. It understands the nature of Israeli-American relations. It actually was there was a moment. Where you know there is a big talk of the the collusion, <laughs> Trump and Russia collusion. But there was a moment actually in the early days of the Trump administration, very very dis- much discussed in, in in Russia, whether Netanyahu could be a, a mediator between Putin and and Trump. You know, understanding all these problems and the the this scandal and the toxicity of the Russian uh, Russia in, in the United States right now, you know, Netanyahu could have been a this kind of go go between. Uh, I don't know if, if this if this idea ever materialized, but but still, you know, it tells you something about the the importance of Israel in the overall picture of the Russian foreign policy, not only in the Middle East.
0: So, given this relationship with Israel, what is Russia's position vis-à-vis in the Palestinian situation, Gaza, the the PA, the uh, Palestinian authority in the West Bank. How do they what are their relations with the with Palestinians?
1: Well, yeah, that, that particular issue I think is more in line with the traditional Soviet approach uh for this to state solution, for uh you know, Jerusalem having to be a capital for both Israel and Palestine. Uh and there is in Russia is more I would say conservative, if you want, or traditional on on this particular issue. At the same time, uh, its criticism for Israeli actions doesn't really go beyond uh, a usual diplomatic, you know, uh, practice. So if, you know, there's been these killings and then, you know, the Russian foreign ministry would say we express concern and, but not no no it doesn't really want to drive you know anti-Israeli sentiments and take the lead in this. There is a position. That, I mean, the traditionally would say in the expert community uh, in the Russian expert Middle Eastern community it's more pro-Arab, if we may say that, than pro-Israeli. And that again probably dates back to the uh, Soviet Soviet uh, practice. But Moscow has become an important venue for meetings. Intra-Palestinian meetings between Abbas and you know and Hamas, and uh, all these groups are are coming to Moscow to discuss different things with Russian Foreign Ministry, and then uh, Russians I think have tried at some point to become mediators between different Palestinian groups. There was an interesting time where where Moscow thought it could bring different conflicting Palestinian. Uh, Fractions together to make them a united group in talks with israelis, but marco has always been saying that Palestinians need to get their act together and and, and, and Elaborate a common agenda which they can bring to the table with israel and then israel has to negotiate and and all this the two-state solution uh, The status of jerusalem and uh, things like this It's it's trying to be in a more uh, traditional paradigm uh, I would say but I think again, in, in recent years, it's been up, up the Israeli-Palestinian agenda uh, has ceased to be a central issue in the Middle East. It is gradually coming back with with some of the uh, Trump's decisions. Uh, but you know, before when it was not in in, in focus and Syria was more in, in focus, it was you know Moscow kind of probably realized that there isn't much that can be done now, even all the difficulties. So they, they kind of try to focus, as I mentioned, on bringing Palestinians together as one united group.
0: So what is um, – you, you recently wrote about Assad uh, meeting with Putin and one of the things I found interesting, you mentioned that it seems the Russians are pushing Assad to basically uh, adopt a new constitution um so what is uh what is russia look what kind of outcome is is Moscow looking for in terms of the future of syria
1: uh, last year Russia came up with a number of uh initiatives it thought would help move the the political settlement and peace negotiations uh a little further and it realized that the problem was not uh just with the op- with opposition groups but also with the position of the Assad government uh in the decision that came out from this this conference of the Syrian peoples in Sochi the so-called Sochi Congress the decision well, the major decision that came out of it was uh to create a constitutional commission you know the, a commission that would come together and uh, draft a constitution and again you know draft a number of steps in the political uh process uh that was adopted at the the Syrian Congress but then a few days later Assad representatives said they do not recognize that so that didn't really sit well in 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 Moscow and uh, they were trying to push Assad to recognize it it's been a few intense months of talks and back channel talks on, on, on how to better you know frame it so that Assad could accept it so now that Assad came to to see Putin in Sochi, uh, the major takeaway from their meeting was that Assad finally recognized uh, a need to create this constitutional uh, committee, and he would be sending a delegation to the UN uh, to to discuss further steps. So it is seen by official Kremlin, I would say, as as is a, a victory. Even though I would think, it, I would say, the expert level there are some people saying maybe assad is, you know is just saying this to take his time and you know put more uh, pressure on the opposition and you know do some more gains militarily and things like this but i think once he 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 mentioned it he you know embraced this idea this will be a new Paradigm where Moscow will be trying to, to work, you know, pro- ad- 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 create the, this constitutional commission, try to adopt a new constitution, try to uh, set out a timetable for new elections, try to think through political uh, transition and things like this. Uh, but that's, you know, I've just been at a meeting earlier today uh, among a group of, of experts discussing these things can kind of uh, follow up from Putin's meeting with Assad and and all the people that said it will take, you know, unlimited number of days and weeks and months. So it's it's hard to tell when uh, we we can see clear uh, results.
0: Now, after his um uh, meeting with Assad, Putin stated that, uh, and I'm quoting here, we proceed from the assumption that in view of the significant victories and success achieved by the Syrian army and its fight against terrorism, and the start of a more active phase of the political process, foreign armed forces will be withdrawing from the, ter- from the territory of the Syrian Arab Republic. And of course, you know, the, the main, uh, thing to seize on here is his statement that foreign armed forces will be withdrawing. What do you, what, what do you make of this, um, this statement by Putin and, and how's it being interpreted by all the parties involved?
1: Well, a few things here are interesting. There was a comment by Putin's envoy to Syria, Alexander Lavrenty who was asked by Russian journalists exactly the same question, uh, saying, like, can you specify timetable and uh, who exactly President Putin was referring to? And on the timetable issue, he said, it's hard to, to say because, you know, there are still remnants of ISIS, there are still remnants of Nusra, so uh, all these foreign uh, forces will be fighting them for some time, but that, but then at the end of the day, we'll, they will have to depart. And on the on the uh, speaking on what forces Putin is referring to, uh, Lavrenty said that you know we're talking about uh, all foreign for- forces uh, there, including you know uh, Turks, Americans, Hezbollah, and Iranians. That you know kind of uh, ignited uh, different you know negative response backfired of course in iran and you know they they some were saying well we need to be having second thoughts about you know our relationship with russia and things like this today at the meeting i told you about a, a diplomat who knew the details of this kind of uh, conversation he said uh, basically in the meeting with assad the syrian position was that all foreign forces who were not invited by the Syrian government will have to leave and that meant anyone but Russians and Iranians, you know, so Turks were not invited, Americans were not invited, some European special forces who are there are not invited, but the Russian uh, military facilities in in, in Latakia and and, uh, Hamimim and Tartus and Hamimim are, uh, you know, there to stay until, I think, 2049 or 2015, something like this. And, uh, you know, Iranians are there again upon invitation of the Syrian government. So it's not up for Moscow to tell them when it, when, it, when, it, when to leave. So uh, there was this interpretation. But again, the wording was very, they were picking the words very carefully. And they mentioned that it was a serious position. There was no explanation on what Russia's position on this was. You know, when whether the Russians insisted on the departure of Iranians or, or not. So uh, it still remains, remains to be seen, I think. And again, uh, when this statement, you know, this statement clearly raised a lot of, uh, you know, issues and been quoted by different media a lot. I would think it was also made for uh, political reasons, exactly because of the things we spoke about in the first part. If Iran and Israel want to see Russia as a mediator, uh, the Russians have to make such statements, right? And if, if whether Iranians like it or not, they have to, they, they will have to say that you know you have to leave because this is something that Israelis are expecting for from, from from Russia to do. And then again, one thing is to state this; another thing is how you can actually force them to do it, you know, <laughs> without say uh, having more conflict. And it's it's interesting that I think a few days or around the same same day I think the next day actually Turkey made a statement that Afrin is not going back to under control of Syrian regime. You know that was something also a, a message to everyone who was listening.
0: So you know the the biggest development. Well, I shouldn't say the biggest, but certainly it's a very big development. Was of course um, the United States withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. So what has been Moscow's response to this move, this unilateral move by the United States?
1: Well, the the response was uh, negative, but then uh, definitely Russians uh, were saying that you know this undermines credibility of the United States as a negotiating partner it is going to be hard for Americans to talk to North Koreans now uh, That's one thing uh, Another thing the very uh, concern for Iran where Russia said well then you know it was a guarantee that Iran is not going to be a nuclear state now United States kind of stripped international community of, of these guarantees so there were there's going to be a bigger concern on part of what iran is going to do and third i think was this consideration kind of big picture thing on the issue of non proliferation saying that whatever other state is considering acquiring nuclear or other weapons then it's you know it's going to be harder for them to you know rely on any you know, promises or you know legal basis that uh, whatever they want can be secured through uh, agreements. So there was a bigger problem for, for non-proliferation. Then Russians kind of brushed off uh, the argument that actually this decision by the United States is to their benefit, for the things I mentioned earlier, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, economic, you know, because if Europeans are forced, European companies are forced to leave in the face of U.S. sanctions, uh, then Russian companies who already are under sanctions virtually become only ones who work in Iran. You know, so it kind of actually works to the Russians' benefit to some extent. And then the foreign ministry kind of brushed, brushed off this argument saying the importance of the deal for international security for nuclear issues is more important than our own egoistic interests. Well, I mean, they might be, you know, uh, a little cunning about that, but at the same time, there is this concern that it's hard to be negotiating any other, um, other uh, nuclear related issue, in particular with North Korea. Then I think a few days later, uh, Iran said we might be considering, you know, getting back to 20 percent uh, uranium. And then the Saudis responded saying, then if you do this, we'll, we'll start our own program on nuclear arms and things like this. So there is this concern that, you know, uh, there might be more states seeking to get nuclear weapons and you won't really have any solid guarantees for them because of this decision.
0: So what are uh, Russia's interests in the Middle East? And by this, I I mean, does it have a a vision of what its role should be and a vision for what the Middle East should be?
1: Well, you're asking, uh, this is is the hardest question this far. You know, there is this uh, kind of, uh, well, there is this view that, you know, the United States or Europe do not have, uh, strategy for the Middle East and and Russia does and that's why you know it's quote unquote successful whereas US is is failing and and things like this. Actually, you might be surprised to know that there are similar debates in Russia whether there is a strategy for the Middle East, whether there is, or you know Russia is just uh, successful in uh, uh, taking opportunities when uh, where where and when others fail or kind of filling the void. Where when there is one, uh, I think both are accurate. <laughs> well, both both uh, cons- uh, arguments. At the same time, there is some good reasoning for this in Russia, uh, where people are saying it is hard for any outside power to have a strategy in the Middle East and for the Middle East, because you know things are changing so quickly, so swiftly, in, in such an unpredictable way. It really is hard to plan, you know, several years ahead. And if you look around the Middle East, maybe, you know, Iran, one country that has a very, like, strategy, strategy in the region and for the region. Uh, it, it really is hard for outsiders to, 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 to think more than, you know, one year ahead. I mean, even that is very optimistic. Uh, secondly, there is a consideration of what is the scope of, let's say, Russian interest in the Middle East should be. Right? Uh, should it be, should it be beyond Syria? So, and if yes, I mean, what uh, what it should be? Because you know, there was in early days of Yemeni war, there were some overtures by Houthis to Moscow, you know, asking for their support to come either on their side or to come as mediators between them and the Saudis. And uh, Moscow kind of dodged uh, this role, saying we don't really have any. Uh, strategic interests in stake and and uh, and you know and actually getting us into that conflict will bring us more trouble than than benefits. At the same time, you know, you you may ask the same question and say, well, what are the Russians are doing in Libya then, right? Are there any strategic interests? And and probably no. Uh, but then it it you know different different theories are are flying on on, on this on this particular country and and people would tell you. Well, there is this kind of quote-unquote strategy for increasing Russian presence in the eastern Mediterranean. So in in that sense, you know, the base in in Tartus in Syria and uh, a potential base in Egypt or in in, in a potential military facility in Libya is there to have a stronger presence in the eastern Mediterranean to be able to have a greater leverage on security in the region, in the Middle East and over uh, Europe as well. You know, uh, I mean, all of that, you know, given the current situation between Russia and the West, between Russia and the United States and Europe, uh, it may make sense, you know, if we really are thinking in terms of like diehard realpolitik, uh, that Russia is seeking more leverage, being, you know, cornered on other fronts, in in Ukraine and others, you know, it wants to to be a powerful player outside the post-Soviet space, make itself an indispensable Negotiating partner and if that is a consideration. I think it is by and large uh, Working because you know Europeans want to talk to Russians about Syria President Macron is going to be in St. Petersburg actually on May 24th 25th uh, talking leap in Libya, Syria well, absolutely Merkel was there, just there and that that is like kind of second thing with the scope of Russian uh, interest and and the, the third, the bigger thing, actually, what you ask what is the very, the ultimate interest there? And I think uh, the one that I just mentioned, having leverages and, and making itself an indispensable player is one. Another one, I think, is just giving the geography of the Russian uh, southern flank that is traditionally and historically considered to be, you know, most uh, vulnerable, most security sensitive. And given what's, what's happening there today, the th- security threats from the Middle East are indeed important. And for, for the Russians, uh, a Middle East that take can take care of itself uh, would be an ideal kind of uh, uh, vision, an ideal scenario. And, and for this reason, I think there are a few kind of principles that Moscow thinks that the, the Middle East should be operating upon. One is strong states. And that's why I think Russia is particularly uh, interested in preserving unity of states, even though if it's like very federalized, you know. But if we look around the Middle East, there really aren't many strong states in the region. I mean, they really can't be counted on, on, on fingers of one hand. Uh, and secondly, the, you know, the making these states sustainable enough that they can fight their own challenges security challenges or social challenges and others and I know that Russians are looking very long-term vis-a-vis the Middle East and there are some interesting research on what the climate change how the climate change can affect production of crops in the region five years from now ten years from now what the change in demographics in the region may bring what the rising unemployment you you know coupled with high birth rates can do 10 years from now 20 years from now and it becomes clear from kind of looking at these long-term trends that the Middle East is going to be a very turbulent place uh, you know in 10 15 20 years so what means if you if you can if you can ensure some kind of presence to be there to watch the developments to be there to be able to produce certain kind of uh, leverage when necessary to be there to deploy military force as fast as possible when necessary Then you know it probably is uh, Something worth investing to but then again you don't want to Overstretch your resources you know the soviet Union was a much wealthier state and, and they <laughs> Failed on many fronts in, in the region so I think the russians are not trying to kind of learn the lessons from the past Sometimes they are successful in this. Sometimes they're not. But that's a relatively new game, I would say, for now.
0: That was Maxim Suchkov, the editor of Al Monitor's Russia Middle East coverage. He is a non-resident expert at the Russian International Affairs Council and at the Valdai International Discussion Club. Formerly, he was a Fulbright visiting fellow at Georgetown University in 2010 and 2011 and New York University in 2015. I'm your host, Sean Gillery and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrushablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrushablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!